1: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. This week we're cruising the backwaters of Mississippi, Dark tales seem to lurk around every corner in this state, a near-endless assortment of hauntings, witches, and foul creatures. One of my favorite urban legends from Mississippi is the story of blues musician Robert Johnson, who was said to have made a deal with the devil one night at the crossroads. For the meager price of his eternal soul, Johnson was granted exceptional musical talents. Talents that, even though he died at just 27, make him often considered one of the greatest blues musicians who ever lived. But in digging around for interesting tidbits to share with you about Mississippi, the one strange story that really stood out for me is something known as the Mercritus cover-up. Other than postings about the urban legend itself, though, there's very little to be found online about the disease known as Mercritus. That's either due to the supposed ongoing government conspiracy to cover it up, or because it's nothing more than an urban legend. But the people that say they experienced it, or, more likely, know someone who knows someone that did, well, they're pretty adamant. It started in the late 1950s, with a series of, at first, unexplained riots in Mississippi. But as the events increased in number a clear pattern started to emerge. Women, it seemed, were violently attacking men, or rather men. It seems individual men were targeted and attacked with incredible ferocity and obvious homicidal intent. The cause, though, was something particularly unexpected. A pheromone found on the men, which eventually became known as the Mercutus Condition. Apparently originating in Europe, Mercutus was thought to be the result of a man eating too much lead-based paint, which resulted in his body emitting a hormonal odor that affected nearby women. Now, what constitutes too much lead paint, I'm not sure. Eating any amount of lead paint gives the impression that you've got a death wish already, I would think. Even stranger, though, apparently the effects of Mercutus were strongest in quote-unquote pretty women the most severe case of mercurius activated rage which is what one source called it resulted in an entire village of women chasing one man through the streets of town and into the icy waters of a freezing river where they all drowned i can think of plenty of reasons a group of women may feel compelled to chase a guy down and beat the crap out of him other than him drinking a can of paint But we won't get into that. Let's say we chase down some fiction instead. Our first story is a classic from Frank L. Pollock. Francis Lily Pollock, born in Huron County, Ontario, Canada in 1876, was an early 20th century Canadian science fiction writer. He wrote commercial fiction under the pseudonym Frank L. Pollock and literary fiction under his own name. His published work appeared in The Youth's Companion, Munsey's Magazine, The Smart Set, The Atlantic, The Black Cat, and Adventure. Pollock's writing career was pursued in tandem with the life of beekeeping, and many of his works are influenced by bees. He kept an apiary in Sheddon, Ontario, and farmed commercially. Pollock died in 1957. Children of the Night. Lend me your ears for Frank L. Pollock's Fini, first published in the Argosy magazine, June 1906. I'm getting tired, complained Davis, lounging in the window of the physics building, and sleepy. It's after eleven o'clock. This makes the fourth night I've sat up to see your new star, and it'll be the last. Why, the thing was built to appear three weeks ago. Are you tired, Miss Warder? asked Eastwood, and the girl glanced up with a quick flush and a negative murmur. Eastwood made the reflection anew that she certainly was painfully shy. She was almost as plain as she was shy, though her hair had an unusual beauty of its own, fine as silk and colored like palest flame. Probably she had brains. Eastwood had seen her reading some extremely deep books, but she seemed to have no amusements, few interests. She worked daily at the Art Students League and boarded where he did and he had thus come to ask her, with the Davises, to watch for the new star from the laboratory windows on the heights. "'Do you really think that it's worth while to wait any longer, Professor?' inquired Mrs. Davis, concealing a yawn. Eastwood was somewhat annoyed by the continued failure of the star to show itself, and he hated to be called Professor, being only an assistant professor of physics. "'I don't know!' he answered somewhat curtly. This is the twelfth night that I have waited for it. Of course, it would have been a mathematical miracle if astronomers should have solved such a problem exactly, though they've been figuring on it for a quarter of a century. The new physics building of Columbia University was about twelve stories high. The physics laboratory occupied the ninth and tenth floors, with the astronomical rooms above it. An arrangement which would have been impossible before the invention of the oil vibration cushion, which practically isolated the instrument rooms from the earth. Eastwood had arranged a small telescope at the window, and before them spread the illuminated map of greater New York, sending up a faintly musical roar. All the streets were crowded, as they had been every night since the fifth of the month, when the great new star, or sun, was expected to come into view. Some error had been made in calculations, though. As Eastwood said, astronomers had been figuring on them for 25 years. It was, in fact, nearly 40 years since Professor Adolphe Bernier first announced his theory of a limited universe at the International Congress of Sciences in Paris, where it was counted as little more than a masterpiece of imagination. Professor Bernier did not believe that the universe was infinite. Somewhere, he argued, the universe must have a center, which is the pivot for its revolution. The moon revolves around the earth, the planetary system revolves about the sun, the solar system revolves about one of the fixed stars, and this whole system, in its turn, undoubtedly revolved around some more distant point but this sort of progression must definitely stop somewhere. Somewhere there must be a central sun, a vast incandescent body which does not move at all. And as a sun is always larger and hotter than its satellites, therefore the body at the center of the universe must be of an immensity and temperature beyond anything known or imagined. It was objected that this hypothetical body should then be large enough to be visible from the earth, and Professor Bernier replied that some day it undoubtedly would be visible. Its light had simply not yet had time to reach the earth. The passage of light from the nearest of the fixed stars is a matter of three years, and there must be many stars so distant that their rays have not yet reached us. The great central sun must be so inconceivably remote that perhaps hundreds, perhaps thousands of years would elapse before its light should burst upon the solar system. All this was contemptuously classed as newspaper science, till the extraordinary mathematical revival, a little after the middle of the twentieth century, afforded the means of verifying it. Following the new theorems discovered by Professor Burnside of Princeton and elaborated by Dr. Taneka of Tokyo, astronomers succeeded in calculating the arc of the sun's movements through space and its ratio to the orbit of its satellites. With this as a basis, it was possible to follow the widening circles, the consecutive systems of the heavenly bodies and their rotations. The theory of Professor Bernier was justified it was demonstrated that there really was a gigantic mass of incandescent matter which, whether the central point of the universe or not, appeared to be without motion. The weight and distance of this new sun were approximately calculated, and the speed of light being known, it was an easy matter to reckon when its rays would reach the earth. It was then assumed that the approaching rays would arrive at the earth in twenty-six years. And that was twenty-six years ago. Three weeks had passed since the date when the new heavenly body was expected to become visible. And it had not yet appeared. Popular interest had risen to a high pitch, stimulated by innumerable newspaper and magazine articles and the streets were nightly thronged with excited crowds armed with opera glasses and star maps, while at every corner a telescope man had planted his tripod instrument at a nickel a look. Similar scenes were taking place in every civilized city on the globe. It was generally supposed that the new luminary would appear in size about midway between Venus and the moon. Better informed persons expected something like the sun, and a syndicate of capitalists quietly leased large areas on the coast of Greenland in anticipation of a great rise in temperature and a northward movement in population. Even the business situation was appreciably affected by the public uncertainty and excitement. There was a decline in stocks, and a minor religious sect boldly prophesied the end of the world. I've had enough of this, said Davis, looking at his watch again. Are you ready to go, Grace? By the way, isn't it getting warmer? It had been a sharp February day, but the temperature was certainly rising. Water was drifting from the roofs and from the icicles that fringed the window ledges as if a warm wave had suddenly arrived. What's that light? suddenly asked Alice Warder, who was lingering by the open window. It must be the moonrise, said Eastwood, though the illumination of the horizon was almost like daybreak. Davis abandoned his intention of leaving, and they watched the east grow pale and flushed till at last a brilliant white disk heaved itself above the horizon. It resembled the full moon, but as if trebled in luster, and the streets grew almost as light as by day. Good heavens, that must be the new star after all, said Davis in an awed voice. No, it's only the moon. This is the hour and minute for her rising, answered Eastwood, who had grasped the cause of the phenomenon. But the new sun must have appeared on the other side of the earth. Its light is what makes the moon so brilliant. It will rise here just as the sun does, no telling how soon. It must be brighter than we expected. "'And maybe hotter,' he added with a vague uneasiness. "'Oh, isn't it getting very warm in here?' said Mrs. Davis, loosening her jacket. "'Couldn't you turn off some of the steam heat?' Eastwood turned it all off, for, in spite of the open window, the room was really growing uncomfortably close. "'But the warmth appeared to come from without.' It was like a warm spring evening, and the icicles were breaking loose from the cornices. For half an hour they leaned from the windows, with but desultory conversation, and below them the streets were black with people and whitened with upturned faces. The brilliant moon rose higher, and the mildness of the night sensibly increased. It was after midnight when Eastwood first noticed the reddish flush tinging the clouds low in the east, and he pointed it out to his companions. That must be it at last, he exclaimed, with a thrill of vibrating excitement at what he was going to see, a cosmic event unprecedented in intensity. The brightness waxed rapidly. By Jove, see it redden! Davis ejaculated. It's getting lighter than day, and hot! Whew! The whole eastern sky glowed with a deepening pink that extended half round the horizon. Sparrows chirped from the roofs, and it looked as if the disk of the unknown star might at any moment be expected to lift above the Atlantic, but it delayed long. The heavens continued to burn with myriad hues, gathering at last to a fiery furnace glow on the skyline. Mrs. Davis suddenly screamed, an American flag blowing freely from its staff on the roof of the tall building, had all at once burst into flame. Low in the east lay a long streak of intense fire, which broadened as they squinted with watering eyes. It was as if the edge of the world had been heated to whiteness. The brilliant moon faded to a feathery white film in the glare. There was a confused outcry from the observatory overhead and a crash of something being broken, and as strange new sunlight fell through the window, the onlookers leapt back as if a blast furnace had been opened before them. The glass cracked and fell inward. Something like the sun, but magnified fifty times in size and hotness, was rising out of the sea. An iron instrument table by the window began to smoke with an acrid smell of varnish. What the devil is this, Eastwood? shouted Davis accusingly. From the streets rose a sudden, enormous wail of fright and pain, the outcry of a million throats at once and the roar of a stampede followed. The pavements were choked with struggling, panic-stricken people in the fierce glare, and above the din arose the clanging rush of fire engines and trucks. Smoke began to rise from several points below Central Park, and two of three church chimes pealed crazily. The observers from overhead came running down the stairs with a thunderous trampling, for the elevator man had deserted his post. "'Here we've got to get out of this!' shouted Davis, seizing his wife by the arm and hustling her toward the door. "'This place'll be on fire directly!' "'Hold on! You can't go down into that crush on the street!' Eastwood cried, trying to prevent him. But Davis broke away and raced down the stairs, half-carrying his terrified wife. Eastwood got his back against the door in time to prevent Alice from following them. "'There's nothing in this building that will burn, Miss Warder,' he said as calmly as he could. "'We had better stay here for the present. It would be sure death to get involved in that stampede below. Just listen to it.' The crowds on the street seemed to sway to and fro in contending waves, and the cries, curses, and screams came up in a savage chorus. The heat was already almost blistering to the skin, though they carefully avoided the direct rays, and instruments of glass in the laboratory cracked loudly, one by one. A vast cloud of dark smoke began to rise from the harbor, where the shipping must have caught fire, and something exploded with a terrific report. A few minutes later, half a dozen fires broke out in the lower part of the city, rolling up volumes of smoke that faded to a thin mist in the dazzling light. The great new sun was now fully above the horizon, and the whole east seemed to blaze. The stampede in the streets had quieted all at once, for the survivors had taken refuge in the nearest houses, and the pavements were black with motionless forms of men and women. "'I'll do whatever you say,' said Alice, who was deadly pale but remarkably collected. Even at that moment Eastwood was struck by the splendor of her ethereally brilliant hair that burned like pale flame over her pallid face. "'But we can't stay here, can we?' "'No,' Replied Eastwood, trying to collect his faculties in the face of this catastrophic revolution of nature. We'd better go to the basement, I think. In the basement were deep vaults used for the storage of delicate instruments, and these would afford shelter for a time at least. It occurred to him as he spoke that perhaps temporary safety was the best that any living thing on earth could hope for but he led the way down the well staircase. They had gone down six or seven flights when a gloom seemed to grow upon the air with a welcome relief. It seemed almost cool, and the sky had clouded heavily with the appearance of polished and heated silver. A deep but distant roaring arose and grew from the southeast, and they stopped on the second landing to look from the window. A vast black mass seemed to fill the space between sea and sky, and it was sweeping towards the city, probably from the harbor, Eastwood thought, at a speed that made it visibly grow as they watched. A cyclone and a waterspout, muttered Eastwood appalled. He might have foreseen it from the sudden excessive evaporation and the heating of the air. The gigantic pillar drove towards them, swaying and reeling, and a gale came with it, and a wall of impenetrable mist behind. As Eastwood watched its progress, he saw its cloudy bulk illumined momentarily by a dozen lightning-like flashes, and a moment later, above its roar, came the tremendous detonations of heavy cannon. The forts and the warships were firing shells to break the water spout, but the shots seemed to produce no effect. It was the city's last and useless attempt at resistance. A moment later, forts and ships alike must have been engulfed. Hurry, this building will collapse, Eastwood shouted. They rushed down another flight and heard the crash with which the monster broke over the city. A deluge of water, like the emptying of a reservoir, thundered upon the street, and the water was steaming hot as it fell. There was a rending crash of falling walls, and in another instant the physics building seemed to be twisted around by a powerful hand. The walls blew out, and the whole structure sank in a chaotic mass. But the tough steel frame was practically unreckable. And, in fact, the upper portion was simply bent down upon the lower stories, peeling off most of the shell of masonry and stucco. Eastwood was stunned as he was hurled to the floor, but when he came to himself he was still upon the landing, which was tilted at an alarming angle. A tangled mass of steel rods and beams hung a yard over his head, and a huge steel girder had plunged down perpendicularly from above, smashing everything in its way. Wreckage choked the well of the staircase. A mass of plaster, bricks, and shattered furniture surrounded him, and he could look out in almost every direction through the rent-iron skeleton. A yard away, Alice was sitting up mechanically wiping the mud and water from her face, and apparently uninjured. Tepid water was pouring through the interstices of the wreck in torrents, though it did not appear to be raining. A steady, powerful gale had followed the whirlwind, and it brought a little coolness with it. Eastwood inquired perfunctorily of Alice if she were hurt, without being able to feel any degree of interest in the matter. His faculty of sympathy seemed paralyzed. I don't know. I I thought, I thought that we were all dead, the girl murmured in a sort of daze. What was it? Is it all over? I think it's only beginning, Eastwood answered dully. The gale had brought up more clouds, and the skies were thickly overcast, but shining white-hot. Presently the rain came down in almost scalding floods, and as it fell upon the hissing streets, it steamed again into the air. In three minutes all the world was choked with hot vapour, and from the roar and splash the streets seemed to be running rivers. The downpour seemed too violent to endure, and after an hour it did cease, while the city reeked with mist. Through the whirling fog, Eastwood caught glimpses of ruined buildings, vast heaps of debris, all the wreckage of the greatest city of the twentieth century. Then the torrents fell again, like a cataract, as if the waters of the earth were shuttlecocking between sea and heaven. With a jarring tremor of the ground, a landslide went down into the Hudson, The atmosphere was like a vapor bath, choking and sickening. The physical agony of respiration aroused Alice from a sort of stupor, and she cried out pitifully that she would die. The strong wind drove the hot spray and steam through the shattered building till it seemed impossible that human lungs could extract life from the semi-liquid that had replaced the air. But the two lived. After hours of this parboiling, the rain slackened, and, as the clouds parted, Eastwood caught a glimpse of a familiar form halfway up the heavens. It was the sun, the old sun, looking small and watery. But the intense heat and brightness told that the enormous body still blazed behind the clouds. The rain seemed to have ceased definitely and the hard, shining whiteness of the sky grew rapidly hotter. The heat of the air increased to an oven-like degree. The mists were dissipated, the clouds licked up, and the earth seemed to dry itself almost immediately. The heat from the two suns beat down simultaneously till it became a monstrous terror, unendurable. An odor of smoke began to permeate the air. There was a dazzling shimmer over the streets, and great clouds of mist arose from the bay. But these appeared to evaporate before they could darken the sky. The piled wreck of the building sheltered the two refugees from the direct rays of the new sun, now almost overhead, but not from the penetrating heat of the air. But the body will endure almost anything short of tearing asunder for a time at least. It is the finer mechanism of the nerves that suffers most. Alice lay face down among the bricks, gasping and moaning. The blood hammered in Eastwood's brain, and the strangest mirages flickered before his eyes. Alternately, he lapsed into heavy stupors and awoke to the agony of the day. In his lucid moments, He reflected that this could not last long and tried to remember what degree of heat would cause death. Within an hour after the drenching rains, he was feverishly thirsty and the skin felt as if peeling from his whole body. This fever and horror lasted until he forgot that he had ever known another state, but at last the west reddened and the flaming sun went down. It left the familiar planet high in the heavens, and there was no darkness until the usual hour, though there was a slight lowering of the temperature. But when night did come, it brought life-giving coolness, and though the heat was still intense, it seemed temperate by comparison. More than all, the kindly darkness seemed to set a limit to the cataclysmic disorders of the day. Oof, this is heavenly, said Eastwood, drawing long breaths and feeling mind and body revived in the gloom. It won't last long, replied Alice, and her voice sounded extraordinarily calm through the darkness. The heat will come again when the new sun rises in a few hours. We might find some better place in the meanwhile, a deep cellar, or we might get into the subway. Eastwood suggested. It would be no use. Don't you understand? I've been thinking it all out. After this, the new sun will always shine, and we could not endure it even another day. The wave of heat is passing round the world as it revolves, and in a few hours, the whole earth will be a burnt up ball. Very likely, we are the only people left alive in New York, or perhaps in America. She seemed to have taken the intellectual initiative and spoke with an assumption of authority that amazed him. "'But there must be others,' said Eastwood, after thinking for a moment. "'Other people have found sheltered places, or miners, or men underground. "'They would have been drowned by the rain. "'At any rate, there will be none left alive by tomorrow night. "'Think of it,' she went dreamily. "'For a thousand years, this wave of fire has been rushing towards us, "'while life has been going on so happily in the world, "'so unconscious that the world was doomed all the time. "'And now this is the end of life.' "'I don't know,' Eastwood said slowly. "'It may be the end of human life.' But there must be some forms that will survive. Some microorganisms, perhaps, capable of resisting high temperatures of nothing else. The seed of life will be left, at any rate, and that is everything. Evolution will begin over again, producing new types to suit the changing conditions. I only wish I could see what creatures will be here in a few thousand years. But I can't realize it at all. This thing! he cried passionately after a pause. Is it real, or have we all gone mad? It seems too much like a bad dream. The rain crashed down as he spoke, and the earth steamed, though not with the dense reek of the day. For hours the waters roared and splashed against the earth in hot billows, till the streets were foaming yellow rivers dammed by the wreck of fallen buildings. There was a continual rumble as earth and rock slid into the East River, and at last the Brooklyn Bridge collapsed with a thunderous crash and splash that made all Manhattan vibrate. A gigantic billow, like a tidal wave, swept up the river from its fall. The downpour slackened and ceased soon after the moon began to shed an obscured but brilliant light through the clouds. Presently, the east commenced to grow luminous, and this time there could be no doubt as to what was coming. Alice crept closer to the man as the grey light rose upon the watery air. "'Kiss me,' she whispered suddenly, throwing her arms around his neck. He could feel her trembling. "'Say you love me. Hold me in your arms. There's only an hour.' "'Don't be afraid. Try to face it bravely,' stammered Eastwood. "'I don't fear it. Not death. But I've never lived. I have always been timid and wretched and afraid, afraid to speak, and I've almost wished for suffering and misery.' or anything, rather than to be stupid and dumb and dead, the way I've always been. I've never dared to tell anyone what I was, what I wanted. I've been afraid all my life. But I'm not afraid now. I've never lived, I've never been happy, and now we must die together. It seemed to Eastwood the cry of the perishing world. He held her in his arms, and kissed her wet, tremulous face that was strained to his. The twilight was gone before they knew it. The sky was blue already, with crimson flakes mounting to the zenith, and the heat was growing once more intense. This is the end, Alice, said Eastwood, and his voice trembled. She looked at him her eyes shining with an unearthly softness and brilliancy, and turned her face to the east. There, in crimson and orange, flamed the last dawn that human eyes would ever see. That was Frank L. Pollock's Fini, as read by me. Link to my personal page is in the show notes.
0: A lot can
2: happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance.
1: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Our second story for the evening is from Zach Chapman's Spellslinger series, which we heard another entry from back in episode 288. Zach Chapman is an editor, author, gamer, and podcaster. His fiction appears in numerous anthologies and podcasts. Like Robert Howard and Joe Lansdale, he's a Texan and loves writing pulp. Follow Zach's publications at Chappy Zach on Twitter or check out his upcoming Spellslinger graphic novel coming out in 2019. Learn more at thespellslinger.com. Children of the Night Zach Chapman's The Hating House, a Tales to Terrify original.
3: I hate haunted houses, but it was a job for a friend. She'd just sold her saloon and gotten married to a cowpoke from the panhandle. We hadn't spoken in months, but she helped me through a rough spot a few years back in Odessa, so she was owed a favor. A big one. I received a letter explaining the big fancy house she'd sold her saloon for was haunted. You know the deal. Slamming doors, bumps in the night, turning faucets, black mold a rusty pipe organ that spontaneously plays Bach in D minor, and a cellar that opens into hell. The usual. Anyways, she wanted me to exorcise it. The house endured the Texas sun, surrounded by dying trees and blackened grass. It was a modestly sized pre-war style home, with a porch and imposing Greek columns surrounded by barns, a leaning windmill, and fences to keep the cattle in. "'Sibyl met me at the gate. "'You came,' she said, as we hugged the awkward embrace of ex-lovers. "'I hope the train ride went well. "'No train robbers this time, so a bit boring, "'but I was able to work on a few spells. "'You look sober,' she said. "'I am right now.' "'She was as tall and as broad as I remembered, "'but now smelled of hay and chicken feed. "'She must have been sleeping in the barn the last week "'on account of getting out of the house.' "'Sibyl introduced me to her husband, Henry, "'who was a head shorter than me, but impressively handsome, "'and half Indian like myself. "'Hey, Rick?' "'Sibyl touched my shoulder. "'Yeah?' "'Her eyes narrowed on my room-covered revolver. "'Please don't blow up my house.' "'That was going to be my first suggestion. "'If the haunting's real bad, sometimes it's the only solution.' "'You owe me. I'm serious.' We put all our money into the place. I nodded, and we crunched up the gravel path toward the looming structure. The porch's stairs were unusually steep. I turned and rested my hand on the peeling yellow paint of a Greek column. Her husband's brow furrowed with worry. She rubbed his back. You know, you don't have to come in with me. It's fine, Sybil said. The house is more active at night, so we have a few hours. I want to make sure you don't burn it down. The moment we stepped inside her house, wind slammed the door shut, and the damn thing locked behind us. I tossed my Stetson on the coat rack and became gradually conscious of two things. First, the inside of the house was substantially larger than what it appeared like from the outside. I've seen the trick in a dozen bewitched homes, but it's always impressive. And second, there was at least one obvious malevolent presence in the house. Sibyl led us down the hall. My boots made the red sequoia floor creak as we walked. The smell of crushed citrus and vinegar hung in the air. An attempt, I'm sure, that Sibyl made to mask the stench of decay that accompanies many haunted homes. I could hear a faucet running somewhere. "'Your sink got a leak?' I said. You never let your saloon get like that. We followed the sound of flowing water into the kitchen and discovered Sibyl's set of dining china, floating in the sink, seemingly washing themselves as if by an invisible hand. Well, I said, that's a damn convenient haunt. No sooner were the words out of my mouth when a dish flew through the air, narrowly missing my head, and crashed into the wall behind me, spraying shattered fragments across the kitchen. Another dish rose out of the sink water. I drew my revolver and fired. A jet of white-blue ice shot out of my gun, shattering the dish and freezing all of the water in the sink solid. The malevolent presence that had flung the dish dissolved in a violent gust that blew past us. I turned to see Sybil comforting her sweaty husband. "'Not bad, right?' I said, cold spells ain't my forte. I don't care what your forte is. You probably burst my pipes. At least they didn't blow a hole in the wall, I looked at Sybil's husband. He was trying not to shake. You okay? Henry's a northerner turned cowpoke, she said, and kissed his cheek. He isn't accustomed to life down here yet. hasn't seen a spell-slinger duel, let alone a demon or phantasma. I sighed and reached into my bag and pulled out some small gingerberries and put them in Henry's shaking hand. I chew on these when I need to have a steady aim and my wits about me. Spell-slinger trick. They'll make your mouth go numb, but it'll calm you for a bit. Chew them slowly. He ate the fruit, and Sybil appeared thankful. So, that's it? Henry asked. You killed it? I couldn't help but laugh. There's a thing about haunted houses. They're never easy. I don't just walk in and shoot a demon and the job's done. There's always endless corridors filled with booby traps or some Indian burial ground that's been desecrated or an eldritch site I've got to seal, or the worst, some spirit with unfinished business i got to make happy. I shook my head. Freezing your silverware ain't going to solve the problem. "'I'll need to search the house, investigate a bit.' "'I looked back toward where we'd entered the kitchen, "'but the hallway seemed different, elongated, slightly twisted. "'The floorboards were warped and gray, "'a far cry different from the red sequoia we'd walked on coming in. "'That look familiar?' I asked. "'The house does that sometimes,' Sybil said. "'It's playing tricks.' As we walked down the hallway, it stretched before us. And I mean literally stretched. The three of us had a sense of space dementia. We pressed forward but hardly approached the end of the corridor, despite our brisk speed. Gradually, hemp ropes began to unfurl from the ceiling, dangling like snake corpses. They brushed my shoulders as I passed them, cool to the touch. "'Well, this is new,' Henry said. "'Rick!' "'Can you do something about this?' Sibyl said, pointing down. "'I looked down and noticed black liquid oozing out of the floorboards. "'Against my better judgment, I ran my finger across the floor, testing the fluid. "'It burned my skin like acid, and I quickly wiped it on my pant leg. "'The hallway walls began to morph. "'They no longer seemed to be made of wood. "'Slowly they shifted to a soft, pale texture that glistened like moist skin.' Henry touched the wall with the palm of his hand. The house's frame shuddered, and a dark bruise spread across the wall. Sweat and blood seeped out. Henry took a stunned step back. My fingers itched to draw my gun. The hallway walls began to rot. Black pores formed and maggots poured out, spilling onto the dark, slick floor. We need to move now! I said, shoving Henry down the hall and grabbing Sybil's calloused hand. At this point, the ropes from the ceiling began to sway as if each were caught in a different breeze. Warily, each rope twisted in on itself to form the slip of a noose. Then the coils were on us, darting out, looping around us, slipping around our throats. Sybil's scream was cut off as a rope curled around her windpipe and lifted her off the ground. Before I could draw my revolver, the things were strangling me, too, yanking me into the air. Henry was no use, either. Sybil reached for a bowie knife on her belt and hacked away at the ropes. Yes, I thought, as my vision grew dim. That's the woman I know. She'll have us out in no time. Her knife just passed through the strands, severing nothing, despite her vicious hacking. Damn! I fought for air. Fought to keep conscious. On my belt I had a devil-finger, a thin kind of knife that can banish certain ghosts. Maybe it could cut through these cursed nooses. But I was so contorted and bound that I couldn't reach the damn thing. K! My belt! I choked and swung as hard as I could toward Sybil. Her eyes met mine, and I glanced down at the devil-finger. She swung toward me, deftly grabbed the handle, slid the blade out of its sheath, and in one quick motion... "'cut herself free just as my vision went black. "'I came to. "'I lay on the sequoia floor, "'staring up at fleur-de-lis pattern ceiling. "'The hallway had returned to normal. "'Sibyl stood over me. "'How many times is it now that I've saved your hide? Five, I think. Maybe six. "'I pulled myself up best as I could. "'My back ached something fierce.' Purple and red rope burns were visible on Henry and Sybil's necks and arms. She motioned to hand me the devil finger, but I shook my head. Best if you keep it in case the house has any more cards to play. I've got my gun. I paused. Look, let's just keep moving throughout the house. I'm sure we'll corner the entity shortly. I hope so," said Henry. Sybil nodded and led the way. Let's check the dining room first. We entered a large room. At its center stood a dining table and eight elegant chairs of a foreign design. A wide mirror hung on one wall, spanning nearly the length of the room. It felt sophisticated and simple, kempt. A vast contrast to the saloon she'd managed for so many years. I'm impressed, I said, save for the haunts. Looks like you're living the good life. I looked at a reflection in the mirror. Although tarnished in places, I could see that the neck of Sibyl's blouse fit tightly around her sinewy muscles. She said nothing but was smiling at me, a strange, mischievous smile, almost sexy. I nearly returned it, but looked at Henry's reflection instead. His eyes were full of horror. For a brief moment I thought it was due to insecurity, but then Sibyl was raising the devil-finger, approaching him. "'Poised to attack. "'The blade descended. "'I spun. "'But Sybil wasn't there. "'An illusion of the mirror. "'Henry stood there, in mid-flinch, dumbfounded. "'Did you see that? "'The mirror? "'It? "'Yes, I know. "'Did you see where she went? "'Did she even enter this room with us? "'No, I don't know,' he gasped. "I, "'I was looking at the reflection.' "'I cursed.' I pulled out a piece of chalk and scribbled a spell of truth across the mirror, but it revealed nothing. I tried a few more spells of disillusion. Our reflections distorted, smiled. In frustration, I cracked the mirror with the butt of my revolver. "'Where is she?' Henry shouted. His voice echoed throughout the house. I grasped his shoulder to calm him and felt a sudden and strong desire for him. Memories of a dozen men I'd laid with forced their way into my head. The house was trying to get in my head. Collect yourself, man, I said as much to Henry as to myself. We'll find her. I pulled Henry along. I wandered out of the room, down a corridor, up a staircase, all while muttering spells of tracking. Disembodied voices, whispers mostly, joined mine, first parroting my incantations, then mocking them. Nausea and dizziness rose in me. THE voices CRESCENDOED IN A SHRILL LAUGH, THEN SILENCE FOR A MOMENT. OUT OF THE STILLNESS, A YOUNG MALE AND FEMALE VOICE HARMONIZED IN A DEMONIC CHANT. LET THE CATTLE TRAMPLE THE FENCES we MENDED, LET THE FIELDS WE'VE TENDED BLAZE AND BURN, LET THE INFIDELITY CUT US TO PIECES, LET THE BLOOD SMOLDER IN THE TEXAS SUN. BEHIND ME, THE SLOSH OF HENRY'S VOMITING WAS AUDIBLE. He wiped his mouth with his sleeve and attempted to shout over the voices, "'You—you lost Sybil! "'If you just give me a minute, I'll find her. "'Why did she even have us follow you in here? "'Who in their right mind would come back inside this place? "'Ugly house with its peeling yellow paint. "'It's full of ghosts, for Christ's sake. "'She followed you in here because she still loves you.' "'Henry's face had grown a darker shade of red. "'Sybil doesn't love me.' "'You're letting the house get to you, Henry.' "'To his credit, I could see his internal battle. "'He did his best to fight off the jealousy and rage rising inside of him. "'But I have been in enough haunted houses to know where this was headed. "'Henry couldn't handle it. "'As he spoke, I slowly cycled my revolver. "'She's with you, isn't she? "'The two of you have planned all this out, haven't you?' "'No.' "'He raised his fist like a drunkard at a saloon.' I shot him before he could take a swing. He looked at me, puzzled, then slumped to the floor and began to snore loudly. I always keep a variety of sleeping spells for occasions like these. They're no good against supernatural threats, but for the occasional vengeful pharaoh player or pissed sheriff, they're perfect. I reached into my purse and pulled out a narrow vial. It contained the piss of a Red King demon, the kind of demon that dines on ghosts and lesser haunts. Most folks are familiar with how garlic works to ward off vampires. Well, this is similar but with ghosts. I've sprinkled the foul stuff on Henry, and it'd keep him safe. Probably. Now this is the time displacement part of my story. The phenomenon is a little hard to describe. Have you ever had false awakenings or dreams where time is indiscernible? Those are the closest cognitive examples I can give. After I stumbled away from Henry, I walked down endless labyrinthian corridors. nightmare warped my perspective of time and reality, despite my multiple wards against the house. Two incorporeal voices reverberated through my head, taunting each other, shouting accusations of violence, betrayal, and adultery. The floral wallpaper distorted, forming dark outlines of buried corpses, reaching out of their graves with narrow, broken fingers. I felt as if I were walking in a bleak picture book. I won't lie. There were several times I nearly broke down and blew a hole in the side of Sybil's home using my spell-slinger revolver. But I endured, and I followed my tracking incantations, searching after Sybil. Suddenly a door rattled to my right, grounding me. It flung open, and Sybil stood there. Is it really you?' she asked. I hugged her. "'Where's Henry?' I left him in the hallway. "'Is he okay?' Sybil looked as if she were about to strike me. "'What if the house hurts him?' "'He's fine. He's asleep.' "'What?' The house possessed him and he attacked me, so I coaxed him into a nap, used my spell-slinger craft to keep him safe. Just then I caught a scent of something. She was standing in the doorway to a room where something happened. "'Something big. Maybe the origin of the house's curse. "'I had to get in there. "'Hold that thought, Sybil,' I said, and stepped past her. "'It was a large room, a bedroom at some point. "'The cot had long since been removed, but an old dresser remained looming in the corner, "'its drawers half open. "'A gust of wind tore past the dresser, ripping parchment from 2 aged journals "'and scattering them across the room like dead leaves.' The pages twisted, danced as if caught by a wind demon. I grasped one and read the first few lines. Today, my wife told me what I'd suspected for a long time. She's been having an affair with the barn manager. I love her with all my heart, but the rage boiled inside me, uncontrollable. In the middle of the hot summer day, I went outside and shot our manager in the back. I buried him under the house. Sibyl grabbed a page out of the air and read it aloud. I caught Jessie's little mistress trying to ride home last night. I told her I needed help with bridling my horse. When she approached, I struck a kitchen knife in the girl's soft, pretty neck. I read another. Last night I found my two darlings cut to pieces. Tonight I will ride into town and do her ex-lovers the way she did mine. I wonder where their bodies will fit. We're running out of space under the house. There must have been three dozen pages, every one another account of infidelity, jealousy, or murder. Finally, after a long moment of just hearing the quiet rustle of a parchment against floor, Sybil said, The couple who lived here before us were murderers. For the briefest moment, their final scene together flashed before Sybil and me. The husband's brains stained the ceiling. His skull was an open bowl full of squirming maggots. A shotgun awkwardly tilted in his lap. His wife swayed in the breeze, her feet dangling above the ground right next to his corpse. She'd hanged herself. It wasn't guilt that did the men. The couple couldn't deal with the anger, their hate for each other. It drove them to suicide. And just as all the pieces came together and I understood the cause of all that was wrong with the house, the ethereal form of the wife appeared before us. Her face was bloated and blue. Her neck was bloody from the noose. Her dead black eyes fixed on me with hate, and she rushed me. But I was faster. I drew my revolver and fired. The purple blast of a banishment spell enveloped her. Her scream reverberated through the house as she was dragged back to the realm of the dead. And then she was gone. I could hear Sybil's ragged breath. "'Hey!' I said, smiling at her. "'Look at that! I didn't blow up your house!' I moved to embrace her, but stepped on something soft and wet. A pool of maggots materialized out of the floorboards. A cloud of flies flew in from the open window and swarmed the room, creating a dense miasma. Out of the thickening bugs formed a human arm, a leg, then the face of the husband. I drew my gun and fired. Click! Flies had covered my gun, jamming the firing pin. With supernatural strength, the ghost picked me up and tossed me against the wall. As he approached, I rolled over and attempted to brush the flies out of the firing pin. But the bugs had piled up so much that I was merely spreading them into a thick paste. I stood, stuck my gun in the creature's chest, and fired. It made a sickly wet noise when the hammer fell, crushing a dozen flies. It issued no spell. His strong fingers clamped around my gun hand. I yelped. My bones creaked as he ground them into the cold steel of my revolver. They'd break at any moment. "'Sibyl!' I commanded. "'Get your ass out of here!' Instead, she rushed the ghost and raised the devil finger I'd given her. She plunged the skinny blade into the ghost's back. He screamed. Flies poured out of his mouth. Sibyl ripped the blade free and stabbed in a frenzy. Another pang reverberated through the house as the husband's ghost dissolved into a pile of dead flies.' I flicked the flies from my gun. I was covered in sweat and bug grime. At least the two evil forces in the house were gone. Thanks, I said to Sybil. You did great. Should have just sent you the devil finger in the post. Could have saved me the trip to Texas. Is it over? Yes. Well, yes and no. Murderers die every day and don't stick around like that. It's their eternal hate and jealousy that has created this haunting. It drove their souls mad. That's what scarred this home with such a strong evil resonance. Usually a resonance like this finds its footing with the current living souls in the house. I felt them pulling at me, and I know Henry has felt their jealousy. That leads me to believe that there is something you haven't been telling the truth about. That's what caused the house to react like this. Sybil was quiet for a long moment. She nodded. "'Rick?' You have to understand. You know what I'm like. Even in Odessa, I was never with just one man, not even with you. You need to tell Henry the truth. The haunts will find a way back if you don't. I don't want him to leave me. If he loves you, really loves you, you all can make it work. He'll stay. I left it at that, and Sybil didn't respond. We walked into the hallway. What she needed to tell Henry weighed heavy on her shoulders. The house seemed smaller. The menace was no longer present. Henry lay sprawled several meters outside of the room. "'Rick, can you wake him up?' I knelt down and waved my hand over his face. "'Awaken,' I said. But nothing happened. "'Ah, shit, my magic's spent.' I slapped Henry's cheek and his eyes flew open. "'At first he looked mad.' Then his features relaxed. It's gone, he said. I can feel it. You fixed our house. Sybil did most of the heavy lifting, I said. She was quiet. Her smile was fake. She'd tell him. But by that time I'd be well on my way back north. I clapped Henry on the back. You should probably exhume all those bodies under the house. They ain't going to contribute to a good night's sleep. There are d- d- dead bodies under our house? Henry asked.
1: That was Zach Chapman's The Hating House, as read by Dan Grzynski. Dan lives in Tully, New York, near Syracuse, and earns his living bending the unseen forces of nature to his will as a broadcast engineer. He's been a recording engineer, electronics technician, repairer of broken things, and regularly reads for LibriVox. Thank you, Dan. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of stories to tell. For now, consider supporting our podcast on Patreon via the link in the show notes, and like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Leitzee. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we invade your mind with more Tales to Terrify.